Having looked at some of Shelley's theories of poetry, we're going to examine three of his shorter poems. The first is one of his most political poems, Sonnet, England in 1819. Although written in 1819, it was not published until 1839. As I pointed out in the introduction to the Romantic period, King George III had ruled since 1760, but had been declared insane in 1811, and his son, the future George IV, ruled as Prince Regent. The Regency period, as it was known, was marked by political corruption, gambling, and sexual scandals. And this is part of what Shelley rails against in his vicious critique of the monarchy. The poem was also inspired by the so-called Peterloo Massacre of 16 August 1819, when thousands of workers, including many veterans of the Battle of Waterloo, demonstrated for greater representation of the working classes in Parliament. The demonstration took place in St. Peter's Field near Manchester and was violently broken up by militia, causing many fatalities. The word Peterloo is a play on St. Peter's and Waterloo, and the news of the massacre was condemned far and wide. Here's the sonnet. An old, mad, blind, despised, and dying king. Princes, the dregs of their dull race, who flow through public scorn, mud from a muddy spring. Rulers who neither see nor feel nor know, but leech-like to their fainting country cling till they drop, blind in blood without a blow. A people starved and stabbed in the untilled field, an army whom liberticide and prey makes as a two-edged sword to all who wield. Golden and sanguine laws which tempt and slay. Religion Christless, godless, a book sealed, a senate, time's worth statute unrepealed. Our graves, from which a glorious phantom may burst to illumine our tempestuous day. This poem is considered a sonnet, though not strictly according to either the Petrarchan or Shakespearean mode. One of the remarkable things about this sonnet, besides its harsh critique of the monarchy, princes, the dregs of their dull race, who flow through public scorn, mud from a muddy spring, and rulers who are leeches drawing the blood from the country, one of the remarkable things is the unusual syntax of the poem. The entire 14 lines make up a single sentence, consisting of 12 lines that make up a catalog of all these ills, and then the verb finally comes in line 13, our graves from which a glorious phantom may burst to illumine our tempestuous day. All that has come before the verb, Shelley considers to be dead, from which there is a phoenix-like bursting forth with everything driving toward that word burst. A very powerful and especially political poem from Percy Shelley. On a quite different note, we have another sonnet from Shelley, the very famous poem, Ozymandias. 
I should note here that Shelley is not particularly known for sonnets, as he tended to favor longer poetic forms, but the ones that he did write are memorable, and Ozymandias is one of the most anthologized poems in the English language. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The poem's subject, Ozymandias, is the Greek form of the pharaoh Ramses II, who is thought to be the patriarch of Egypt, whom Moses challenged in the Hebrew Bible. One noteworthy feature of the poem is the irony of the statement in the center of the poem, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. This is the statement uttered by the pharaoh, but we hear it through several layers of narration that serve to distance it from us. Ozymandias' words are spoken, and the sculptor hears them and their tone and inscribes them on the base of the statue. Its sculptor well, those passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. So the sculptor heard the words, but also saw the man who uttered them, and the sculptor reproduced the wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. But of course, we are also getting this from a great distance in time. It's an antique or ancient land and space. The speaker of the poem has not seen this statue and inscription himself, but has met a traveler who has seen the statue and read the words and reported them to the poet's speaker, who in turn reports them to us. So the words of the pharaoh come to us through the sculptor via the traveler, who repeats them to the poem's speaker and in turn to us. Thus the pharaoh's words are enclosed by all these narrative frames, much like a framed tale such as we might encounter in the Arabian Nights or Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And of course, the supreme irony of all this is the fact that these words of arrogance are now just trunkless legs in the desert surrounded by lone and level sands. The shattered wreckage survives to mock his arrogance and render his words ironic. Yet Ozymandias' passions survive this and are echoed by the tyrants of Shelley's day, and no doubt our own as well. Finally, let's look at one more poem from Shelley, Ode to the West Wind. One of his most accomplished poems, The West Wind, is a hybrid form with a strong Italian influence. Terza rima in sonnet stanzas, rhymed ABA, BCB, CDC, DED, EE. This provides interlocking rhymes that are popular in Italian poetry. 
There is much enjambment, a term for lines that run on. The phrases do not end where the lines do, but spill over onto subsequent lines. This creates an energy and a force that drives the poem forward. John Milton was also fond of enjambment and often wrote poetry in long, complex sentence forms. This is in contrast to the poetic form that we call end-stopped. When a poem's lines are end-stopped, the end of the line coincides with the end of a grammatical unit. For example, Shakespeare's sonnet 18, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Heroic couplets also tend to be end-stopped, such as those written by Alexander Pope. Each line is marked by a grammatical pause. By contrast, a line which does not end with a grammatical break is enjambed. And enjambment comes from a French word meaning to put one's leg across or to step over, just as the sense of the line steps over the end of the line. For example, consider these lines from Keats's Endymion. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep a bower quiet for us and a sleep full of sweet dreams and health and quiet breathing. The first line, a thing of beauty is a joy forever, is end-stopped. The second and subsequent lines are enjambed. West Wind is one of several poems by Shelley, and Mont Blanc is another and was written around the same time that have a strong spiritual element. West Wind derives much of its spiritual atmosphere from Hinduism, in particular the Hindu gods Shiva the Destroyer and Vishnu the Preserver. Here is the first stanza. O wild west wind, thou breath of autumn's being, thou from whose unseen presence the leaves dead are driven like ghosts from an enchanter fleeing, yellow and black and pale and hectic red, pestilence-stricken multitudes, O thou who charietest to their dark wintry bed, the winged seeds where they lie cold and low, each like a corpse within its grave, until thine azure sister of the spring shall blow, her clarion over the dreaming earth, and fill driving sweet buds like flocks to feed in air, with living hues and odors, plain and hill. Wild spirit, which art moving everywhere, destroyer and preserver, hear, O oh hear. This stanza is filled with earth imagery, seeds, the dreaming earth, and so on. In the second stanza, he turns to the sky, and part of this stanza reads, Thou on whose stream mid the steep sky's commotion, loose clouds like earth's decaying leaves are shed, shook from the tangled boughs of heaven and ocean, angels of rain and lightning, there are spread on the blue surface of thine airy surge and so on. This stanza is filled with imagery of clouds, storms, rain, the sky, vapors, and hail. In the third stanza, the poet uses sea imagery, so he has moved from earth to sky to sea. Thou who didst waken from his summer dreams, the blue Mediterranean where he lay, lulled by the coil of his crystalline streams, Beside a pumice isle in Bayes Bay, 
and saw in sleep old palaces and towers quivering within the waves' intenser day. This stanza is filled with images of the ocean waves, the Atlantic's level powers, the sea blooms and the oozy woods, and the sapless foliage of the ocean. All of these establish a kind of energy, a kind of motion. In the fourth stanza of the poem, the poet tries to participate in this energy that he has seen in the earth, the sky, and the sea, but is excluded. If I were a dead leaf thou mightest bear, if I were a swift cloud to fly with thee, a wave to pant beneath thy power and share. That's all three of his earth, sky, and sea images in those three lines, bringing them together and continuing. The impulse of thy strength only less free than thou, O uncontrollable. If even I were as in my boyhood and could be the comrade of thy wanderings over heaven, as then when to outstrip thy skyey speed scarce seemed a vision, I would ne'er have striven as thus with thee in prayer in my sore, sore need. O oh, lift me as a wave, a leaf, a cloud. I fall upon the thorns of life. I bleed. A heavy weight of ours has chained and bowed, one too like thee, tameless and swift and proud. This seems to be a prayer for inspiration. O oh, lift me as a wave, a leaf, a cloud. He wants to align his poetry with the forces of rejuvenation that he sees all around him, but is unable to do so. Finally, in stanza five, Make me thy lyre, even as the forest is. What if my leaves are falling like its own? The tumult of thy mighty harmonies will take from both a deep autumnal tone, sweet though in sadness. Be thou spirit fierce, my spirit, be thou me, impetuous one. Drive my dead thoughts over the universe like withered leaves to quicken a new birth, and by the incantation of this verse, scatter as from an unextinguished hearth ashes and sparks my words among mankind. Be through my lips to unawakened earth the trumpet of a prophecy. O wind, if winter comes, can spring be far behind. So this is a poem that expresses poetic frustration and uses much imagery of decay, withered leaves, and so on. The poem's speaker also likens his poetical thoughts to these withered leaves that are going to be used to quicken a new birth. He also likens his words to ashes and sparks. Scatter as from an unextinguished hearth Ashes and sparks my words among mankind. Thus the poem ends on a note of hope, looking on toward the spring. <laughs>